This episode is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes. This episode of Futuropolis is brought to you by Braintree. Looking to set up payments for your business? Braintree gives your app or website a payment solution that accepts just about every payment method with one simple integration. Plus, we'll give you your first $50,000 in transactions fee-free. To learn more, visit braintreepayments.com future. When I was growing up in Wisconsin in the 90s, tick checks were a nightly ritual. Despite my parents' best efforts, though, I ended up with Lyme disease by age 5. At the time, Lyme disease wasn't really something people talked about like they do now. And the cause wasn't even discovered until 1981. Right, so it was still in its early days. And it took some convincing on my mom's part to even get a doctor to test me for it. Sounds pretty terrible. Yeah, not so fun. But now that the disease is better understood, and we know that the bacteria is spread through mice and deer, we're better at avoiding it, right? Well, as a matter of fact, it might get harder to avoid. Lyme disease might be even more widespread in the future. A 2009 paper found that by the 2080s, the ticks' habitat would more than double. And we can blame climate change for at least some of that. Yikes. And climate change is just one of the many things that will influence what ails us in the future. So stay tuned to hear more about the future of illness, our topic for today's episode of Futuropolis. I'm Brianna Draxler. And I'm Lindsay Cradwell. So when you think back to the early days of humans, lifespans were shorter. Partly because we didn't know what diseases were or how to treat them, and sanitation wasn't exactly a top priority for hunter-gatherers. And partly because predators that could eat us were a more imminent threat to worry about. And then there's how we live. I mean, today's cities present us with totally different risk factors than an oak savanna 10,000 years ago. David Morins explains it better than I can. He's an NIH epidemiologist. It's really a very old story, and it's the story of human behavior followed by microbial adaptation to that human behavior. So it's not just that diseases evolve, it's that we're actually encouraging them? More or less. When we got into agriculture, for the first time, people stopped moving around and started staying put, and that meant they started to build societies. We crammed a whole bunch of people together, domesticated animals, and ate totally new diets. And that's when diseases from animals started to become a problem. Today, that force is globalization and the new opportunities to travel and trade around the world. Here's Dr. Morins again. As far back as 1957, when air travel was not so common as it is now, the 1957 influenza pandemic was spread around the world by boats traveling between continents. By 1968, 11 years later, when we had another flu pandemic, it was spread mostly by airplanes. So, you know, this is an old, old uh, phenomenon that we, we just keep seeing over and over again. And um, I think that uh, the, the, the disease chikungunya is an interesting one because, um, yes, it's spread by human travel, but um, as much or more so, it is spread by the uh, spread of the mosquito, which is traveling as well. And even our best efforts to prevent these things could be making it worse. You know, we build hospitals, and then we get hospital-resistant organisms. You know, the major, one of the major engines of these drug-resistant bacteria is hospitals. Well, that's a depressing thought. 
Yeah, but then there are technologies that are improving our health, or at least the health of our spawn. Now you're just being creepy. Spawn? Are we talking like in the movie Gattaca, where every baby is genetically engineered to be flawless? Not exactly. Outside of Hollywood, scientists are testing the genes of embryos for chromosome abnormalities, for things like Down syndrome. That's what geneticist Santiago Mune does. He came up with the first test of this kind and founded a company called Reprogenetics. What we think is that in the future it will be routine for, um, for people to freeze their eggs and their sperm when they are in their 20s. And then when they decide to, to reproduce, uh, then um, through in vitro fertilization, you make the embryos. And we test uh, these embryos uh, through PGD for any uh, genetic disease that will be already known uh, to be present or not in, in that couple. Uh, this will guarantee uh, that uh, the embryos and the babies will be free of disease and also will prevent uh, infertility. But then there are life changes that you can't be tested for before birth, at least not yet. Cancer is a big one, and it's about to get a lot bigger. The baby boomer population is reaching an age of uh, maturity where cancers are more prevalent. So there is prediction that the incidence of cancer will go up uh, as the baby boomers are aging. Uh, The other thing that's happening is people who've had cancer are living longer. So more people are surviving this disease, which may make them susceptible to secondary cancers in the future. That's oncologist Jenny Cruz. And this aging population is something we've been anticipating for decades. The Popular Science Archives were worried about this day as far back as 1957. The three biggest killers today are primarily the major degenerative diseases, heart, cancer, and cerebral hemorrhage. All three are primarily diseases of old age. They are man's biggest threat only because he now lives long enough to fall victim to them. But they had a good dose of optimism, too. Here's more from the 1957 article. Maybe by the time the degenerative diseases are ready to catch up with that 1957 baby, they too will have been licked. Already, there are thousands of cured cases of cancer that stay cured. And by the time today's child reaches 35, there may be as effective a cure for cancer as there is today for pneumonia. As far as cancer research has come in the past 50 years, we still don't have all the answers. The challenge right now is that our knowledge needs to catch up with the technology. So we're going to need more effective ways of treating it. Enter immunotherapy. We've known for a while that the immune system plays an important role in cancer, but we've always assumed that cancer cells were too much like normal cells for our immune system to be very effective in eradicating them. Now researchers are finding out that's not true. We can train our immune systems to kill cancer cells and only cancer cells. Here's Dr. Cruz again. So it's conceivable that sometime in the future, as a practicing oncologist, you're going to be able to profile a patient's tumor and access these huge databases and get a more um, prescriptive, personalized approach to care. So I I foresee that happening, um, hopefully, within my career lifetime. To get a clearer picture about what illnesses we'll deal with in the future, we call Dr. Anne Schickett of the CDC. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. 
I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, we're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now, uh, sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But you know, I'm not gonna mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. Now back to our conversation with Dr. Ann Shukit of the CDC. This is Ann Shukit. I'm the Deputy Director for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. I came to the CDC in 1988, so this is my 27th year here, and I've spent most of my work um, focusing on infectious diseases and um, epidemic response. And how did you first get involved with disease work? You know, I'm a physician, and I went through traditional training in medical school and an internal medicine residency and chief residency, and then I came to the CDC for our epidemic intelligence service or the disease detectives that you've probably heard about, and I ended up staying on at CDC uh, for, the, you know, for the last 27 years. Yeah, that sounds like a really exciting position to be in as one of those detectives. Yeah, it's a pretty exciting way to work in, in health and to um, use the medical skills, but at the community or population level. So if, if we're kind of looking toward the future in this area, what diseases in particular do you think we'll be worrying about down the road? You know, looking to the future is always difficult. I, I come from the influenza world where we say predicting the future is extremely uh, dangerous uh, because uh, influenza anyway is so unpredictable. But I think there are a few things we can be sure of. Um, People are getting older. We're living longer. And as we age, some diseases become more common. Um, our habits have not necessarily been the best. And unless we change some of our habits, we're at risk for a number of chronic diseases that can be debilitating. Um, and our environment has been changing as well as uh, people have been changing. And going forward, we know we're very interconnected now. We may be even more interconnected in the future which means that problems in any part of the world can be in our backyard uh, today. And so we need to um, be mindful of diseases all around the world that could spread. Um, and and the, the third area besides the host and the environment is um, the vectors of disease. And in, in the infectious disease world, we have to be worried about um, the germs changing and becoming resistant to the interventions that we have. So we worry about antimicrobial-resistant bacteria, and we also worry about uh, pathogens changing because of intentional uh, interventions. Um, so I think that in the future, we're likely to have a lot more people suffering from chronic diseases if we don't change the habits that we have right now. And we're likely to need to continue to worry about infectious diseases, even though they may seem fairly quiet right now because of the interconnections that we have. So to kind of break that down a little bit, what do you mean when you say chronic diseases? You know, the big ones are heart disease and stroke and cancer and obesity, diabetes. Those will be the principal 
um, conditions that we worry about um, uh, interfering with people's lives, not necessarily all the leading causes of death, but ones that really can change the quality of life for people. In terms of the cancers, we have been making a lot of progress with better survival for cancer and better prevention of many cancers through screening, like colorectal screening, um, and through vaccines. You know, who would have thought that we would have vaccines against cancers? But we now have vaccines against hepatitis-related cancers. Uh, the hepatitis B vaccine can prevent liver cancers, and we have vaccines against um, cervical cancer. So pretty exciting uh, medical interventions that can prevent some of these cancers. So um, we think that there's a lot we can do so that the future 20, 30, 40 years from now is a lot better. So how about for diseases that are a little more difficult to predict? Right. That's my specialty. We know we will have future pandemics. We don't know how bad they'll be. But as a country and as a world, we work hard to prepare to mitigate the, the severity of consequences that the next pandemic will have. Um, one of the exciting things happening right now is research into better influenza vaccines that might um, give even greater protection in the elderly and might also um, have broader protection so that we don't have to give them out every single year the way that we do right now. And so I, I really hope 50 years from now that we have much better uh, ways to prevent influenza and to uh, mitigate the risk of pandemics, which we still suffer from. Um, so the, the other thing that's really hard to predict are these emerging infections. And of course, the world is, is still dealing with Ebola in West Africa. We're not quite to zero yet, and it's been a really hard uh, year and a half of that condition. But what I, what I can say is that um, the next terrible pandemic or epidemic may not be Ebola. It may be something else. And what we need to do there is to make sure that every country can protect their own population, that they are able to prevent, find, and stop um, outbreaks of um, threats like Ebola. And so in terms of those protections, does that usually come in the form of vaccines, or do you anticipate other protections that could be pursued in addition to that? Of course I'm optimistic that 40 or 50 years from now, we're going to have fantastic new tools, both for detecting problems, for diagnosing disease, for treating and for uh, preventing through vaccination. But I think we can never forget the tried and true public health measures of having systems that let us know what's going on and um, bring us to investigate quickly and take appropriate measures to um, respond. We'll never be able to predict exactly which germ or bug it is that's going to be the problem a few years from now, but we can have strong systems to um, address them wherever they happen. Do you have ideas of what some of those tools might look like or things that are in the works? Right. Well, so in addition to the um, exciting research on the influenza vaccine improvement effort, I think there's a, a lot of advances in um, diagnostic tests for um, infectious diseases. The um, molecular biology revolution has really improved our ability to uh, characterize uh, pathogens more quickly. And one of the things that we're finding with these new tools, the next generation sequencing or whole genome sequencing, is that patterns are, are evident that we couldn't have found before. So we're finding right now for some foodborne disease outbreaks, there are um, links between cases in different states and links between people and uh, um, a contaminated food that we would never have found with the old tools which were not so sensitive or, or um, discriminating. And so I think in the future, 
we should have um, a real um, ability to harvest the fruits of these uh, laboratory diagnostic testings so that we can control disease better and even prevent it. What do you think the next kind of social shift is going to be that could have a real impact on how these diseases spread? Um, You know, I think that um, diseases really take advantage of um, the worst situations. And so we know that poverty and war are are huge drivers of um, infectious disease spread. So unfortunately, we do continue to have parts of the world that have um, you know, that are really suffering with, with um, um, fragile states and major disruptions, um, large refugee populations and so forth. And so we always worry about outbreaks in those kind of contexts. And I, I hope, you know, 40 or 50 years from now, the world will have figured out how to stop those kinds of problems and, and really have dealt with extreme poverty. But we will continue to have uh, infectious diseases anyway, as a problem as as long as there's that kind of social unrest and um, inequality. Now, on the other hand, as the world gets richer and fewer people are living in extreme poverty and more people are, you know, middle class and and, uh, having a lot of opportunities, I think we suffer from the lifestyle diseases. And it's interesting, isn't it, that isolation can cause certain diseases, the chronic lifestyle diseases, whereas being too overcrowded is causing some of these infectious diseases. So it seems like there needs to be some sort of Goldilocks point right in between for us to really achieve some positive health outcomes. Yeah, and I I think in general, you know, the world is getting healthier, but there are more inequities. And so we need to address um, both of those. And you're seeing a lot of these things firsthand in the field. Does that change your perspective going forward? Do Do you still remain hopeful that we can change these? I am very optimistic and hopeful for the future, but I also um, feel a sense of urgency because I know that the people who are still suffering from some of these things um, are why we come to work every day. We'll be right back with more of this conversation after this message from our sponsor. This episode of Futuropolis is brought to you by Braintree, code for easy mobile payments. Maybe you're working on the next Uber, Airbnb, or GitHub then why not use the same simple payment solution that helped them become what they are today? Braintree makes mobile payments so fast, easy, and seamless. It's almost magical. Add it to your app with just a few lines of code, and you're instantly ready to accept Apple Pay, Android Pay, PayPal, Venmo, credit cards, even Bitcoin. And if some other way to pay comes along, they'll support that too. Braintree's fast payouts and continuous support means you'll always be ready, whether you're earning your first dollar or your billionth. See fewer abandoned carts and more sales with Braintree's best-in-class mobile checkout experience. To check it out for yourself, visit braintreepayments.com future. And now back to the show. So if we kind of move away from that, that reality base, sci-fi loves to tackle these issues of disease outbreaks. And I'm wondering if, if you think that um, if they sometimes get it right or if this is just an over-dramatized version? You know, of course it's hard to generalize, um, but I do think some of the things that we see in public health um, are stranger than fiction. So, you know, the um, circumstances of how viruses spread or how um, bacteria spread, some of the um, lifestyle-related health conditions that emerge are are kind of uh, unbelievable sometimes. 
I read that you had consulted on the movie Contagion back in 2011, um, and that that character was based on you as as sort of a researcher in a field work. And I was wondering if you could speak to that experience. Sure. Um, yeah, the movie Contagion um, actually was was quite realistic. I, I would say that features of the movie that might have seemed um, pretty hard to believe for people um, resonated with me from things that I've seen. I was um, able to go to Beijing during the SARS epidemic, and I did see the streets emptied of people. Um, you know, schools were closed, businesses were closed. Um, Beijing has, is a city known for its traffic. There weren't cars in the in the street, really, because um, society had shut down in response to that outbreak. Um, you know, so I think that um, um, some of the um, aspects of social breakdown that the movie portrayed, we, we have seen in different um, uh, severe outbreak settings. Bringing it back to reality, you talked about how some of these things are actually stranger than fiction and stranger than some of the things we see in Hollywood. Can you give some examples of ones that you've encountered in the real world while you're doing your field work? Well, maybe let me just say one more thing then about the SARS epidemic. Um, you know, there were um, there was an, uh, a person who was ill um, with SARS in Hong Kong, staying at a hotel, and people who stayed on the same floor as him at that hotel, the only thing they had in common with this gentleman was was being guests in the same hotel on the same floor. Um, became ill and started outbreaks in several other countries. So this one, you know, just being at that hotel that night on that floor meant that that virus got into, um, you know, um, a good number of other countries. Um, so I, I think that was just, no, you know, that couldn't have possibly happened. And that actually happened. So, you know, we saw that particular totally new disease spread from country to country with these very um, limited Inter interactions of people. And so I think that was a pretty nightmare scenario. If you were to come up with your sort of sci-fi vision of the future, what would that look like? You know, I think it's a, a future where people have great information to take care of themselves and their communities, and we're really working in a harmonized way to um, enjoy life without suffering from preventable illness and, and disability. Um, you know, information is our friend in this case, and having um, communities that help us apply that information effectively. So, so you know, I do think that um, we're so lucky to have the communication tools we have right now, to have had the scientific advances that we have. I think we'll see many more scientific advances, but I hope that we can um, start to do better with behavior change, because at the end of the day, um, humans need to uh, act in ways that, that um, it, it's, it's human actions that actually can really affect our, our health. Do you think with these advances in communication and technology that we could be 100% immune to things in the future? You know, there are always going to be um, threats out there. One of the things with infectious diseases is they are able to evolve so quickly. So even though we have some really great vaccines, there are new bugs and there are new versions of bugs that keep coming. And so, you know, I do think that the microbial world will always be a threat. 
Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was great to talk with you. Well, I must say that I'm pretty glad to live in the age of modern medicine where we have technologies that are really helping us. Yeah, me too. And I'm going to make sure to eat my apple a day from now on, no matter what. That's it for this episode of Futuropolis. If you want more, you can find us at popsci.com or on Twitter at popsci. Futuropolis is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. We'd like to thank Andy Bowers, Henry Malofsky, and Laura Mayer at Panoply. Thanks also to Lydia Chain for her tireless transcriptions and to Matt Giles for interviewing Dr. Morins. Thanks to Nicole Liu for mining our archives for podcast gold. And as always, thanks to Sophie Bushwick for being the voice of our archives. I'm Brianna Draxler. And I'm Lindsay Cradwell. Thanks for listening. See you next time. In the future.